All right, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, if you're watching online, uh, here's what we're doing. For those of you who are watching in the future, uh, it's Wednesday afternoon, and one of the things that happened this past Sunday for um, the church services, we had a pretty major sound system issue. And what, it, what ended up happening is halfway through the sermon on Sunday, the sound cut out. And it was going in and out live, but online it was steady until the middle of the sermon, and then it cut out. So what we decided to do was to re-record the sermon for the people who aren't able to make it during this time. You guys are going to be... Uh, you can't come because of COVID, so you're at home watching. So I want to take some moment for us to jump into this sermon. Uh, I'm going to re-record it for you on Wednesday afternoon. That's why I feel more casual. That's why the room is empty. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the next part of our series. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, I pray you'd help my mind to settle and help me to focus on teaching the Word, even though there's no one in the room. God, I pray that you would still use this for whoever's watching it online, that I'd be faithful to the word, that our hearts would be tender to hear what you would say to us. And God, would you pray for all the people who can't be with us that are watching it online? God, I pray you would keep them safe. I pray that their faith in you would be growing. And God, I pray they would be more and more in love with you and your word because of this time uh, where life has kind of almost hit pause for them. I pray you protect us from fear and anxiety, that we'd be a people that have tremendous confidence in you. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to jump right in because we're continuing our series on Do Justice, Love Mercy. Um, now, I'm going to jump right into it, even though this is a tense conversation. Here's, I'm going to summarize what the conversation sounds like right now. And I'm, I want to lay out for you what both sides of the argument are. And, and the deal is that many of us tend to get defensive or upset when we even wade into this conversation. But, but here's, here's how I would say that the conversation is sounding right about now on Twitter. And obviously this is going to be caricatured a little bit, but, but here's the basic argument that feels like what's going on right now. Uh, the statement that it feels like is happening is that all white people are racist. Uh, all of a sudden we hear that and, and people would say, wait a second, you're saying I'm racist? And then we say, not only that, but as a white person, you have privilege. And, and for many white people, they hear those statements and they hear things like that and they think, I don't feel privileged. It, it feels like I'm working my rear end off here to make ends meet and to provide for my family. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Well, what privilege exactly are you talking about? Because what you call privilege, I call hard work. Or, or you say racist. I, I don't hate black people. I don't know why you would say I'm racist. I, um, and so it kind of turns into that. And then the response often turns into, don't blame me for your bad decisions or your parents' bad decisions. We removed racism in our country decades ago. How long until you're responsible for the world that you are making for yourselves and your family? And, and that's what the conversation feels like right now. And probably many of you online uh, may be triggered just by even saying that statement. I know for me, I feel nervous even articulating those arguments out loud that seem to be happening in our society right now. And, and the question that I'm asking is, how do we as followers of Jesus engage that conversation? Like, how are we supposed to think about this? What does God say about this? And, and um, so, we've, so far, we've been doing this series on justice. This is our fourth, fourth week on it, but here's what we've talked about so far. At the very beginning, we framed this entire conversation by, by saying that God is in charge. He is in charge. He's not out of control. He's got this. And so that causes us to respond with confidence and worship that God is in control. 
Not only that, but his gospel is stronger than our stubborn hearts and sin and misunderstanding. So we don't only just we not only do it with confidence and with worship, but we respond with hope that the gospel was actually the answer for the problems that we're talking about right now. And then after that, that was the first week. The second week, we took time to, do, to look at how God defines justice in the Bible, which is not just simply you get what you deserve. If, if that was his only definition of justice, there would be no good news in the gospel because God did not give all of us what we deserved. He did more than that. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. So, so justice is, is what we looked at was justice is the execution of fair and right laws. It's executed equitably and fairly equally for all. Not only that, but it's about helping those who are vulnerable or oppressed and maintaining whole relationships in the community. It's all of those things, which is exactly how God interacted with us in the just in, in the gospel. We deserved condemnation because we rebelled, but he helped us because we were vulnerable and we were weak, even though we were guilty and rebellious, and he went to maintain a whole relationship with us by stepping forward to restore that, by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. That's, that's, that's what we looked at at God's definition of justice. And then we also saw that, listen, people are sinful and broken. Therefore, it should not surprise us that the systems that people build are sinful and broken because they're built by sinful, broken, flawed human beings. And it will never be made right until Jesus reigns on the earth. And, and so it shouldn't shock us that our systems are broken. Then last week we also saw that, listen, the first step for us to respond is with listening and with empathy. That, that's our very first response, that we've got brothers and sisters, we've got neighbors who are deeply wounded and are upset and instead of destroying the argument, the first thing we need to make sure we understand is that we hear, we seek to understand, and we listen with empathy. But, but empathy isn't enough. That's, that's kind of what we know. Now, let me tell you where we're going to head in the next couple weeks, and then we'll jump into today. Next week, we're going to be talking about repentance. Well, what do I do about sins that I did not commit? Or what about the sins that I did commit? What about sins of the past and in the country's past? And so I'm going to lead us through a time of repentance and lament next week. Then the week after that, we're going to have a conversation about what the Bible says about government authority and, and police officers. How should we be viewing those, those authority levels when they're just and when they're unjust? And then three weeks from now, we'll be asking this question, well, what's next? What are we supposed to do now? Where is, what is Jesus going to do with all of this? Uh, where is all of this headed? That's where we're going to end up in three weeks. That's where we're headed. So let me come back to our conversation. How, do, how are we supposed to respond to the claim that we are racist? How are we supposed to think about that? And, and as I think about that, I want to make sure that we know this statement. Uh, the early church had some serious issues with racism. And that may sound as, as a shock to you, but there were serious racial issues in the early church. It was tense, and it was a, a constant problem they were bumping into. They were, they were centered around cultural differences and race differences and, and background differences. Like, it was a very diverse early church, and they had some serious issues. And I'm not going to highlight all the racial issues and tensions that existed in the New Testament. But let me remind you of a few. Let me remind you of, first of all, in the very beginning of the church, in Acts chapter 6, they've got these widows, and this church in Jerusalem is meeting the needs of all these widows. And this complaint rose up 
that the, the Jewish elite widows, the widows who were the pure Jews, they were racially pure, they were traditional, they had all the influence, they got things right. Those widows were getting more than the, the widows that weren't pure Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, the, the Jews that might have had a little bit of Greek in them and they weren't as good at being Jewish as the other Jews. They, they, were, they, were, uh, they, weren't, they just weren't the elite, they weren't the people in power. Those Greek Jews were getting neglected solely based on the fact of their background. Not on accident, but like an intentional, we love these Jewish widows, we want to care for our Jewish widows, and, and if we have extra left over, we'll take care of some of these Hellenists. They were getting neglected, and, and they didn't defend and say, you know, it's not what you understand. They said, yes, this is an issue, and what they do, they set up deacons to handle this issue in the early church, or think about Paul and Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Paul is hanging out with Gentiles. Paul and Peter are hanging out with Gentiles in Antioch. The gospel has exploded in this city, and the church is now full of Jews and Gentiles. Actually, it's becoming more and more Gentile than Jewish as the gospel advances. And now the Jews have this problem because their entire history, they've been told, you are the people of God. You're distinct, and you're holy, and you're special, and and God views you with love, and that's why he gave you the laws. And everything about their worship caused a problem for interacting with people who were not of the same race and not of the same religion. It caused major issues, so much so that the way they even set up the temple, there were different levels of access to God you were allowed to get. So in the very middle of that, the high priest called the Holy of Holies, he could go in there once a year. That was like the Jew of all Jews. He could go. He was the cleanest dude. He could go in there once a year. Then you stepped out, and that's the place where the, the priests could go. Then you stepped out further, and it was only Jewish men. And then you went out a, a little bit further, and Jewish men and women could both go. But then there was this other spot that Gentiles were not allowed to cross. There was a gate there saying, you can't get any closer. Like the outer court was divided in half where Gentiles, people who were not Jews, they were not allowed to cross that barrier. And it, they would try to kill you if you crossed that barrier. That, that was ingrained in their worship even. I mean, to the point that for the Jews, they almost had to wash the Gentile off after they went to the market or wherever they were going in this time. And, and so here's Peter and Paul in Antioch, and they're engaging, and Paul is, and Peter are loving hanging out with the Gentiles. They're eating bacon and pork chops and bacon rot pork chops, and they're enjoying being with the Gentiles. They don't have to wash the Gentile off. And then some Jews from Jerusalem show up, and Peter gets nervous. He says, you know, I can't, I, I can't be with this. This, is, this, isn't, this isn't comfortable anymore because now my fellow Jews are going to be offended by this. So, so Peter and Barnabas all separated from the Gentiles. And this is racial, right? This is, this is all, you're non-Jewish. It's not, it's not because they did anything wrong. It's because of their background, their culture, their race. That's what was going on. Um, I don't know if my sound just went out again. Um, I don't hear it in the speakers. Did the sound go out again? There it is, it's back. Uh, something went out, so, okay, we're still streaming? Okay, good. If you're streaming, guess what? This is live and in person, so we're not gonna edit that out. Um, so here's what happens with them. So Peter and Paul get in a conflict. In Galatians chapter two, you can see this fight happens in public where Paul says, Peter, you can't do this. You're misrepresenting the gospel when you treat the Gentiles like they're not equals with you. When you allow this racial, cultural issue to get in the way, you're undermining the gospel. Listen, 
the, the early church had tons of issues with race. And it would have been much easier for Paul to start a Jewish church and a Gentile church in every single city, but he didn't. He started one church, and they had to be together and work out their differences and figure it out and determine what all was going on. And so, um, I, I, did the sound go out again? Okay. I don't know what's going on, but we'll get that figured out for Sunday. Um, so anyways, um, let me jump into the book of James, and James is the passage we're going to be in where I think it talks. That's our passage for today. Okay, now let me summarize what James is, because James is a practical, gritty, hard-hitting book. And here's a summary of the entire book of James. In James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. You see that? He says, listen, if, if you think you're religious and you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving your heart. You have a worthless religion. Let me put it this way. If anyone thinks he's a good follower of Jesus and his Facebook and Twitter feed are out of control, he's a fake. That's not real faith. If your mouth is on fire and the things you post online are ridiculous, that's not real religion. If you want to see more details, look at James chapter 3. But then he says this, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it's not only controlling your tongue. If you have a real faith that actually works, like real legitimate saving faith, it bridles the tongue, it fights sinners, it keeps yourself unstained from the world, and this next part, they visit the widows and the orphans. And, and here's what he's basically saying. Like, it cares about the weak, the vulnerable, the needy, the oppressed. Like, true religion keeps yourself away from sin. It guards your mouth and the things that you say. And it cares for those who are wounded and hurting and vulnerable and oppressed. It cares about those people. That it's, it's plain as day. And then in James chapter 2, James is going to flesh out in more detail what this exact issue looks like um, in the early church. He wants, to ex he wants to expound more and more what real working faith is going to look like. So here's what he says in James chapter 2. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, listen, I... Do not show any partiality when you're doing the faith. That word partiality means to accept, the, accept someone's faith. So the idea is you see someone, you meet them, you accept them based on some type of external or outward appearance, or you accept them based on their race, you accept them based on their, their influence, their position, their role, their, anything they have in common, their background. It's saying you do not do this. Don't show this type of partiality. Now, let me say it this way. Racism is much worse than partiality, but it is the same heart sin that's behind it. Like, that's the point that I want you to hear. I know this isn't talking about racism, but it is talking about partiality, and racism is partiality either hidden or on steroids. Either way, it's partiality based on race. Now, now listen, here's how I would say this. Um, it, this is the person that says, I don't hate black people. I just prefer my race more. Isn't that normal? Well, I would say it is normal. All sin is a normal human thing. But, but what I'm saying is what he says, if you are showing partiality, you are disrespecting the Lord of glory. <coughs> 
excuse me, that it's always awkward to cough in the middle of a corona pandemic. But that was not a corona cough. That was just a Fias cough. Listen, it's always wrong to show the partiality in the faith because you disrespect, you inaccurately, re- you misrepresent the glorious and awesome person of Jesus Christ. Now, now listen, he's going to expound and he's going to use an example of a specific issue that might have happened in the early church. Now, he's going to talk about a rich man coming in uh, and how they deal with rich rather than poor. But I think it can apply to all partiality, not just partiality towards the rich, any type of partiality that would happen in us. And, And you should hear me on this one. This happens all the time in churches. Listen, someone comes in and they've got influence and they're popular. Man, listen, people will tend to fawn to that person. Be like, man, we're so excited that they're here. I think the illustration I would give is it happens like in youth. It's like youth group type of thinking. Like, listen, these kids are coming into the youth group and you've got the chess club and the glee club and all them. But then the quarterback comes in, the star quarterback and the, the dude that's being recruited by FSU and Clemson as a running back or a uh, defense, whatever, whatever position. He comes in all of a sudden, he's like, man, dude, aren't you pumped? Let's make sure that kid has a good experience because think of the influence that he could have on his school for Jesus when he goes back. We, we know how to, how to pretty up the sin of partiality for the name of Jesus, but it's still partiality. And what James is saying, whoever walks through that door, you don't cater to them because they've got more influence or more money or they're a certain race or a certain background or they've got more in common with you. Every man, woman, and child that engages the church, there should be no partiality because that's not how Jesus engaged us. You need to be reminded of this. All of us, if, unless you're Jewish, we're outsiders. And Jesus did not say, listen, I'm going to go talk to my Jewish people and I'm going to completely ignore all the Gentiles forever. No, he came and offered all of us salvation. All of us. That's what he did. He came and said, I'm dying for everyone in the world. And yeah, he came to the Jews first, but he came to all of us. We would not have access if Jesus showed partiality. None of us would. We would be on the outside looking in. But listen, James is going to unpack the heart behind the sin of partiality. So let's look at verses um, 4 to 6 and see how he unpacks this. Look at this example. I'll start in verse 3. And if you, he says, or verse 2, I'm sorry. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Like, look at this part. He says, listen, if you do that, if a rich guy comes in and you ignore him or or there's this this important political, maybe the mayor comes in to visit for church and a homeless guy comes in right next to him and you you are all over the mayor and you tell the homeless guy to, hey, just, you can be here, but just sit on my feet. Like, just, just, I'll let you be around, but you can't sit in one of the chairs because you're too dirty or smelly or whatever the deal is. Whatever partiality they would say. Listen to how James describes it. He says, have you not then, this is verse 4, made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That, that idea evil is it's wicked. It's not bad thoughts. It's evil, devilish, satanic thoughts. That's the idea there. When you do this, it is straight evil you can, you can paint it however you want, but it is evil if you are a person that shows partiality, especially in the church. If we're going to treat rich people in a certain way or people with influence in a certain way, it's called evil and we misrepresent Jesus. But, 
But look at how he, he flushes this out a little bit more because he's, he's going to explain why. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Let me tell you what he's just done here. He's saying the people are taking the rich and the poor and they're making a distinction and it's evil and it's wicked. But Jesus has said, I love the poor. They're equal. They're favored. I love them. They're going to inherit the kingdom just like you. He raises them up to the same level, even a little bit higher is what it seems like. And so here's what you need to hear from this. The issue behind partiality was a judgment that judged people and missed the fact that they were made equal. They're all humans. Like they're made, the Old Testament say this way, that they're made in the image of God. They bear the glorious image of God. They reflect who he is. The Old Testament paints this picture that every man and woman, every human being is this image bearer of God, that there's something about God that they reflect and we've painted it and broken it with our sin. That's why Jesus came to die. But regardless of the mistakes we've made or the background or the experience, regardless of how smart we are, or how strong we are, or how weak we are, every human being is made in the image of God. We, we don't reflect that image perfectly. But we are definitely made in the image of God. And when you show partiality, you do not view, you are not viewing the other person with the dignity and worth that they deserve, the dignity of an image bearer of the Almighty God. You don't see them as a person that can show you more about God. Now, now here's why that's tough for us. Here's the question. If we're talking about the issue of racism, the question is this. We're talking about partiality and racism. One of the issues that would happen behind it is, do we view all people as dignified image bearers of God? Not just equal and human. I'm talking about exalted, dignified image bearers, that they reflect something about who God is. Maybe not perfectly, but they're valuable and worthy and dignified, that they bear the image of the almighty, glorious creator of the universe, and that by itself makes them extremely valuable. Do we see all people that way? Do we see white people that way? Do we see black people that way? Do we see rich people that way? Do we see poor people that way? Do we see people that way regardless of their race or the color of their skin, regardless of past decisions? They're still made in the image of God regardless of income, regardless of criminal record or job, regardless of their age or their mental health. Literally, here's the thing. Every single person is an image bearer of God that has tremendous value and dignity. Now, we would, we would scream this from the rooftops about abortion. We would say every unborn child is made in the image of God. And we would defend it practically with voting and legislation. We would march about it and do whatever it took to stop the sin and wickedness of abortion. And yet there's other ways that we disrespect the image of God in people, like favoritism or racism. Listen, do we see all people? Do we see Republicans and Democrats as made in the image of God? That they're equal human beings? Do we see Marxists and socialists and capitalists all made in the image of God? Now listen, I'm not saying that their ideas are all equal. I'm saying as people, they are all equal and they're made in the image of God. Listen, do we see police officers and criminals all made in the image of God, worthy of respect and dignity and value? Do we see people with special needs? Listen, do we even see people who are extremely sinful from our perspective as the Bible? Do we see people who are sexually broken? 
Do you see adulterers and people addicted to, to pornography? Do you see people of every sexual orientation? Do you see all of them as made in the image of God, regardless of their decision, action, backgrounds, or struggles? Because the Bible says every human is. And yes, we don't all portray it rightly, but that doesn't mean we don't have value as an image bearer. That's one of the issues that's underneath the issue of favoritism and racism is that we, we disrespect and we don't see the value of people who are made in the image of God. We, we make distinctions based on class or sin. And God says, no, those are evil. And you don't represent Jesus well when you do that. But there's a second issue, and this is the one that really cuts. Look at verses 8 and 9 of James chapter 2. He says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Like, listen, this one is... This one cuts deeper because it says this. There's another issue with showing partiality. You're actually disobeying God when you show partiality, specifically the command that says you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. When you show partiality, you are not loving your neighbor. That, that's a bigger question for us. Uh, are you loving your neighbor? It's, it's actually unloving and disobedient to show favoritism. All favoritism would be unloving. Listen, I think Jesus actually made this conversation unbelievably racial in Luke chapter 10. It's probably the most famous passage we know about where Jesus talks about loving your neighbor. Uh, if you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and this is going to be the story of the Good Samaritan. right? Y'all remember this story, right? Uh, this lawyer shows up, and this isn't like a legal courts lawyer. This is a Jewish, I'm gonna, I know the law of God lawyer. He's He's an expert in the law of God, not just the law of the land, but the law of God. And this lawyer stands up and he wants to test Jesus. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. Teacher, I want to know, what am I supposed to do to inherit eternal life? Like, like how do I go to heaven? And Jesus said to him, well, what's written in the law? Well, what do you think it says? And the guy says, well, I know what it says. It says, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is like, you know what? Good answer. Do that. And this dude is immediately like, yeah, that's a sweet. Wait a second. You almost see the pause for him, right? And verse 29, he says, but he desiring to justify himself. Like he, he begins to think about the implications of what that actually means, realizing he can never attain to that thing. And he begins to think about him actually loving his neighbor. And he's like, oh, man, like I need, I need to wiggle out of this because if it's just love your neighbor as yourself, that's too much. I can't do it. So he wants to justify it. He doesn't want to feel guilty or convicted or embarrassed. So he wants to justify himself. And he says to Jesus, okay, wait, uh, I need a little clarity here. Who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this story about a man that's on a road. He gets attacked by robbers. They beat him. They take his clothes. They leave him to die in the middle of the, stro in the, middle of the road. He's naked, beaten, unable to move, just laying there bleeding, waiting to die in the middle of the harsh Judean environment, which is very warm and uncomfortable. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, a priest passes by. This is in verse 31. Now the priest, this is the guy that, that leads in worship. This is the guy whose job it is to 
to help you know God. He's constantly doing the sacrifices for you. When you go to the temple, this is the guy that helps do the sacrifice. This is the priest, the person who knows and loves God and wants to help people get access to God. She's a man, bruised and broken and needy. And what does he do? He's either too busy or he doesn't want to deal with it or he's, it's too risky for him. It's too uncomfortable, too costly. Whatever the reason is, he doesn't help. I'm sure he justified a million ways why he didn't have to help, why it wasn't his responsibility, why that guy had caused the problem all on his own. Whatever reason it was, he didn't help. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He didn't check on him, didn't, pray, didn't even pray with the dude. He just went on the other side as if praying and then leaving the guy to die would have done any good, but he, he just passed by on the side. And then likewise, a Levite comes. Now, this is like the guy who helps the priest do this stuff. This is the guy that opens up the temple and cleans the temple, and he, he's the guy that's on the front lines of ministry at the temple, another religious elite, and he sees the guy. He's the same exact thing. He doesn't help, but then a Samaritan. Now, listen, here's what you need to know. The Jews considered Samaritans half-breed heretics, they weren't full-blooded Jews. They didn't, get the, they didn't get all the word right. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They had a couple weird interpretations that were wrong, even according to Jesus. So the Jews viewed the Samaritans, you don't know the word, you disobey the word, and you're half-breeds. It's deeply racial. I mean, deeply racial for the Jews, especially for a Jewish lawyer. And this Samaritan, this half-breed, this half-breed person that did not really understand and obey the word correctly, he sees this man, this Jewish man that would not like him, that would consider him a half-breed. He picks him up. Look at what it says. Let's, let's read what he does. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, took out a couple hundred bucks, several days worth of work, and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Can, can you picture this? Like you just picture this. You're injured. People are passing by. This dude picks you up, <coughs> uh, handles your wounds, takes you to the doctor, checks you into the hospital, pays the first couple days of hospital bill, says, I'm going to be back next week, and I'll pay the rest of his hospital bill when I get back. This is phenomenal. It's unbelievable love and compassion and grace. Then Jesus turns it like this. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which, which one? Who was the neighbor? You, you ask, who's my neighbor? And I'm telling you, which one acted like a neighbor? You tell me. In verse 37, the lawyer, he can't even say Samaritan because it's too much for me. He says, the one who showed him mercy. It, it was too racially tense for him to even acknowledge. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He's like, the, the guy that showed mercy, right? Listen, he, he, here's why I'm, I'm bringing that up. Because I do not believe that the right question we should be asking is simply, are you racist? There's a bigger question that Jesus asked. It's not enough to not be racist. The question is, do you love people? Let me be more specific. Do you love black people and Asians people and Hispanic people and white people? Do you love police officers? Do you love people? It, the question is not enough for us to not be racist. 
Tons of unsaved people are not racist. You don't need the gospel to not be racist. It's not enough just to be tolerant. We must be loving. That's the question. So, so are you loving? Do you love people? Do you love black people? Not are you neutral, but do you love black people? Listen, I, I'm going to give an example here that I, I think you need to hear because I need to help drive it home, because I think we could very easily say, yes, I don't show favoritism. That means I love black people. Like, I don't have anything against black people. Listen, I need to give one example, and I'm not trying to embarrass anyone or call you out, but I do need you to think through this. Just one example of the many ways we could really brush past our unlovingness. Uh, when I was a kid, I was probably, I mean, it was elementary, so I can't remember if it was third or fourth grade. I think I was in fourth grade. I went to a camp. Now, I don't know what this pastor was thinking at this camp, but he's got a bunch of elementary kids, and he gets up to preach in the evening service. I still can remember it plain as day. His message was about, uh, he went to the Old Testament, talked about the fact that we should not do interracial dating. It was wrong to date another race. It was wrong to marry someone of another race. We shouldn't do it. Now, as a young fourth grader, I remember sitting in there thinking, my dad is Arabic, and my mom is white. So my dad is very not white, and my mom is very, very white. Blonde hair, blue eyes, meets a crazy, loud, insane Arabic man. And when it came for invitation time, I just remember being completely broken. And so as this little fourth grade, I go to the back to talk to my counselor. I'm just sobbing. And he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, listen, I don't, I don't know. My dad's Arabic and my mom's white. Does, what does that mean? Should my parents have never gotten married? What does that mean about me? Am I a result of sin? Like it was completely devastating for me. And this poor 19-year-old, I don't know what this poor guy was thinking. I mean, it's been so long for me. Um, He just sat there quietly, probably kind of stumped, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. And I, I remember his answer. His answer was this. You're not black, so I don't think he was talking about you. Listen, you, you need to hear me. Uh, the, the question is this. Let me show you the example of this way this creeps into a heart. If your son or daughter brought home a black person and they were dating them or they were marrying them, would you struggle with that? Would your family have an issue with that? Listen, it's been taught in the church, and this is wrong. We've taught that it's wrong to date black people. We've taught that it's wrong to have interracial dating and interracial marriage. And that is sinful, unloving, ungodly teaching. It is wrong. It's partiality. It's racism. It is unloving. It is sin. So let me ask, did you teach your kids that? Did your parents teach you that? Maybe they didn't say, hey, it's wrong. Maybe they just said it's not wise or it's not help for it's going to be too hard listen you need to hear me um that's sinful that that's just one possible way we may have been showing favoritism so church i'm asking you to search your heart and to ask this question not am i a racist ask the question am i loving do i love do i really love people all people black people all people do you love people Let me walk you through some good news here. Here's the first thing. If God's convicted you of this, of being unloving, of showing favoritism or racism or whatever it is, I want you to hear this. Jesus died on the cross 
And he paid the full penalty for that sin, and he makes you completely clean. Even if you messed this up and blown it, I want you to hear the good news from me. Jesus cleans you, even of that. You don't have to be ashamed and embarrassed. Ask him to forgive you, man. He will wash you super clean. He'll, get, he'll wash that filth off of you. The other good news is this. The gospel is strong enough to change our hearts to make us loving, truly loving. So you can just ask God to help you. You have to stay this way. The other thing is this. Jesus did this perfectly. You can worship him for this. If it's repentance that you need, then repent. If you need to ask him to help, then ask him to help. But, but if I want you to stand in awe of the fact that Jesus did it perfectly. He saw us as outsiders. He saw all of our brokenness. He saw all of our differences, but he still loved us and came to die for us and to save us, to make us part of his family. He didn't show favoritism by choosing only Jews or rich people. He came for every man, woman, and child in every nation, in every ethnicity, in every tribe, in every tongue, in every time period of every age group. He came for everyone. Listen, I pray that today either you repent or you ask for help or you worship Jesus who didn't show any favoritism. But whatever we do, let's not have the faith of our glorious Lord by being unloving and not showing the dignity of people. Let's not be people who show favoritism or racism. Let's be people who love. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for this time right now. God, I pray that you would do an awesome work uh, for all the people watching this, that they would be um, in love with you, that they would worship you, that we would not be a people that show favoritism, that you would convict us of unlovingness. God, move us past not being racist. Move us to being loving people. God, move us to being, seeing your image in all people. And God, I pray that we would see how, how, what an awesome God you are, that you don't show favoritism. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone, thanks for coming or for watching again. Sorry, it was a second option. We had some technical difficulties, but I hope it came through okay. Uh, we'll see you again on Sunday.